Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for episode 23 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel podcast. And joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale. Today, we'll be speaking with Raj Gewali. Raj is an expert on responsible tourism and loves soft adventure, cycling, and salads. A serial entrepreneur, he is one of the minds behind a variety of businesses that include The Hub in Kathmandu, Social Tours and Karma Coffee in Nepal, and the Ethical Travel Portal in Norway. He constantly develops new experiences and loves the creative process that is required to develop new products and experiences. He would rather be in the mountains anytime. Welcome, Raj. Thank you, Eric and Ashi. Hey, for our listeners, Raj, I just want to give a little bit of background and context to how we met. Uh, Raj was one of the partners, and his company is one of the partners for the Foodtrex Kathmandu event that we did in May of 2019 there in Kathmandu, and it was it was a lot of fun. You were a great partner. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it as well. I mean, Suraj uh, from Australia contacted me, I think, about a year before that, and then was talking about doing something in Kathmandu. I heard a lot of stories, but I didn't know what was going to go, what was going to happen. And then uh, I think when it came about, it really was good fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it really turned out into a fantastic three-day set of activities around the event. And actually, your cafe, restaurant, cooking school there in Kathmandu, which is called The Hub, really was kind of the hub for the events, wasn't it? It did happen to become that. That's right. It was great for us, too, because we just started this last August. So... Uh, it was a good good focus on it as well, which really helped. Nice. And so what do you think will be your involvement in the future with food tourism in Nepal? A lot, actually. I mean, we've been doing some things in the in the past as well, but never really put full focus on it. I and mean, had coffee tours going on. The cooking course has been going on for nine years. You know, so have been doing like the rice planting festival we just did last week as well. It's yeah. been going on for nine years or something like that as well. And so we've been doing some stuff. But never have put it all together into one container. I think this uh, food tracks actually helped put a focus back on it, on it again. Nice. And you're definitely no stranger to the food and beverage business. I, I think that it's your wife's company, is that right? Which is Karma Coffee? That's right. She started that about six, seven years, maybe eight years ago, and put a complete uh, boutique around coffee, doing upcycling, downcycling, manufacturing, retailing, the whole works, really. And Raj, can you tell us a little bit more? Because it's, it's more than just a coffee company. There's a, a social component to it as well, right? Totally. Uh, my wife actually started off as a tourism advisor and then she, she decided to switch gears before, because she realized that development was actually going nowhere with the uh, developmental organizations. So she, this is our own way of doing development, if you like. I mean, she works now with about 650 different farmers, you know, all single origin, high quality coffee. And then uh, she works with about 30, 32 artisan groups doing everything around it. So, you know, we make coffee paper, coffee soap, coffee cosmetics, coffee tables for coffee, mugs. Everything is made in Nepal, so it's high quality 
artisan stuff, basically. So it has got all these components of actually providing employment, uh, incomes, providing market, uh, you know, the whole thing. It was truly an experience, that's for sure. I really enjoyed it. And more than enjoying the coffee, of course, but it was the whole business model around it, which made you feel really good about purchasing that product and also promoting it. Thank you. That sounds, that's really nice to hear that. Raj, we've heard about The Hub and Karma Coffee. Can you tell us a little bit about social tours and what you're doing with that? Yeah, social tours started in 2002. It actually spun out of uh, some development work I was uh, doing around tourism before that, you know, as a trial with some students. And we decided to do some social work around tourism. And that was uh, very successful. And for me, social work and tourism sort of went hand in hand. And I found a little avenue, if you like, uh, where I could actually start working on really doing what I really enjoyed, soft adventure, and also trying to help the economy, helping people. That was a good marriage, if you like. And that resulted in social tours, moving into very deep principles of social responsibility and at the same time having a ton of fun doing tourism, basically. You mentioned soft adventure. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Uh, it's a difficult thing to describe, actually. I think for somebody who's uh, doing base jumping, skydive might be soft adventure. But for somebody who's uh, never done anything before, a float down a river is soft adventure. So soft adventure is really customizing adventure just at the level that you can manage, I guess, for, for, for people. So, you know, in Nepal, typically that would mean a small hike, a small trek, uh, that sort of stuff, or river rafting. And for the people who have a little bit more feel for adventure, maybe a bungee jump or paragliding, uh, that sort of stuff. So Nepal is really a paradise for something like that. And I was really interested to hear that not only are you working in food and travel in Nepal, but you have a connection to Norway. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was uh, a bit of a funny incident that actually resulted in Norway. I mean, I used to work with this company called Ethical Travel Portal and Linda Verastal, who runs that company since 2007, had a company uh, that was um, outbound from Norway. The website was in Norwegian, and you know it was doing trips in different parts of the world, I mean, the Gambia, Ukraine, Romania, China, and all those places, Nepal included. And at some point, I think it was 2014 or something like that, I said, hey, Linda, I mean, the portal sounds like a really good idea that you could take globe, and uh, you should not only be thinking outbound, and you, know, you should actually take it global, you should turn it into English and make it... Uh, anyone to, to come in and she just said well Raj if you want to join I'll do it I said yeah sure so now I own a company in Norway and people really get surprised why Nepal and Norway but it's just happened right now we're doing a lot of actually inbound of Norway and there too we are slowly moving into the food arena as well because uh, we've got some really good guides who are really good with knowing you know where to eat and coffee shops around Oslo and Bergen so we're using that knowledge to develop trips around the food out there as well. Raj, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the background of social tours. And I was learning a little bit more about you and how you came to really have the business ethics that you have. And I think you were telling a story about when you finished your business degree and you were working in the corporate world for a little bit. And, and it really kind of sounded like it left a really bad taste in your mouth. Can you share that story? And, and I think it's, it's very formative to the kind of person you are today, I believe. Yeah, that's very true. I studied business with a slightly developmental twist, but it was a business degree nevertheless with all the principles that business talk about, making profits, uh, you know, ruling the world uh, of corporate business and stuff like that. 
minimizing costs and all that sort of stuff. You know, so typically when I finished schooling, I decided to enter the corporate market and then work into a research company, market research, you know, dealing with all sorts of corporate research. And just 11 months into it, I think it, it left, like you said, a very bad taste in my mouth. And I just said that this is just not, it's a, it's a con job mostly. It, it just didn't feel right. And thankfully, when I was moving jobs, obviously I was looking around for a lot of opportunities. I found something in fair trade. Then I started working at one of the biggest handicraft manufacturers here in Nepal and started looking after their export business. And that actually really opened my eyes into a completely different world where things could be done right. You know, it never used to be called social enterprise back then, but, you know, it was just doing things right. And from then on, I think, you know, this, the, the idea started forming of how actually business should be done and what should be the minimizing of greed model, if you like. I think that's what I like to always call it where without greed, you cannot run a business. But then if you minimize the greed, you can actually start actually doing good things. Raj, tell us about what inspired you to get into social tourism. You were mentioning a story about helping a tour of students. Can you share what really got you into it? Yeah, that was a very interesting incident that happened because I was used working in manufacturing, supplying sweaters to H&M, actually quite a big factory. At that time, my partner was British, actually used to come from a pretty good school in in the UK. And he decided to bring his school into Nepal to do something like what we used to call a cost plus trip, where uh, you you give a very nice trip to the students and you have like $200 extra to do, actually put it into charity. And then we decided to build a school hostel for the first time and then two years later we did a big cataract eye camp by raising about five thousand dollars going into that cataract eye camp was really inspirational because uh, in the mountains if you don't have sight you have nothing and there's no one to take care of you and then coming down to the cataract camp led by our grandchildren and then going back three days later with complete sight was like wow the power of tourism is quite a lot and that for me was like the birth in my head for social tours and then two years later the bottom fell out of the manufacturing industry and uh, I decided to switch into tourism and for me it was a no-brainer to actually get into doing something like this. Have you always worked in Nepal or have you worked outside the country? I have done consultancy assignments outside the country. I used to live in Ghana for three years uh, somewhere in the middle early 2000s you know, from, even from there, I was remote controlling the company and uh, also doing a little bit of uh, consultancies. But yeah, or consultancies, yes, but not really worked outside the country now. What sorts of social tours do you offer now? All sorts of stuff, actually. I think the way we look at the whole tourism industry is that we want to spread the money in the economy. So we try to diversify as much as possible so that people can actually different types of people can make money. I mean, and then we go in long-term partnerships. That is the important thing. For example, the cooking class that we offer has been going for nine years and we source still from the same little shop, you know, every day, the vegetables, the rice, the spices, everything. And that for me is impact in the long run. It's really good impact. And that sort of stuff is what we really like to do. There's a lot of principles. There's a lot of internalization principles that is very important for us. Doing a tour that is social, the tour that is uh, responsible is a given when you're working in, in responsible tourism. But internalizing the process is another aspect of it, where you actually design a, 
you know, office space that is sustainable. You work with the team, you pay them well, you know, and you know, there's so many different principles that we work in. One of the chief ones being that we don't vertically integrate, which is one of the first things I learned in business. In order to make money, you try to own everything inside that industry. We made a principle of saying, no, we're not going to do that at all. We just do the planning and the execution. We're not going to own cars. We're not going to own hotels. We're not going to own airlines, choppers, nothing. And I will just distribute the money in the economy. And that is a principle that we've been very, very strongly following until now. Raj, would you say your work ethic is a pretty common mindset in Nepal? Or would you say that you're kind of unique and maybe a, a forerunner? I would say we were a bit ahead of our time. I think there are more people doing it uh, now in different forms. I think with the depth that social tools has, maybe it comes from experience or just uh, you know, out of doing, out of practice. I think we do it a little bit more deeper than other people. I've not analyzed everybody, so I can't really say. <laughs> it's wonderful to hear that you're into social and sustainable tourism. Is there a concern in the industry that bothers you that you want to do something about, that you would like to have others do something about? Yeah, I think all of it, actually. I think that's why we try to do it not too big and we try to keep it small, spread it out as much as we can and become sort of an example, showcasing that it can be done. I mean, one of the missions that we have is to prove a concept of linked prosperity. And I think that's exactly what we're trying to do. And we show that the market is there you can do it well, then people copy, which is great. I think uh, if people copy, more and more people will do it. The more, the merrier, isn't it, in the world of sustainability? When you say linked prosperity, is that basically a rising tide floats all boats? Is that the concept? Uh, That is essentially, I think, one of the principles in the whole process of sustainability is that you ensure that there are many stakeholders and all of them are, are benefiting from this whole process. And I think that is the way we look at it. So what's your next business idea for Nepal since you're a serial entrepreneur? <laughs> for Nepal, probably not. I think with the hub and what we're doing with uh, combining the efforts of Karma Coffee and social tours into this conscious living space, I think we have our hands quite full right now. We're also thinking eventually that uh, we might open up in Austria because my wife is Austrian and see if this concept floats in another market. We think it will. We're getting a lot of appreciation from people about what we have created here, and we think that this marriage works. Uh, What we also find is that people can't seem to actually place us on where we are. Are we retailers? Are we an attraction? Are we a coffee shop? Are we an export house? Are we, you know, uh, event organizers? Are we an experience provider? Or are we tour operators, you know? And I love that. I love that confusion because why not? You know, you should actually, you don't, there's no need to fit into anything particular. And, uh, it's beautiful that we can do that. And I think we could probably try it in Europe and it could be quite a lot of fun doing it. You said you were ahead of the curve, but you're really demonstrating that. I mean, you're completely thinking outside the box. You're turning business on its head. And sometimes that's a lonely place to be. Uh, I don't think so, actually. I think there's a lot to gather from other businesses. There's a lot to gather from other people doing things. So actually, you have the benefit of actually, you know, being able to take from everybody and just move ahead. I don't necessarily work on comparison. I don't work on trying to set big sales targets and stuff like that. And I mean, like I said, the process is what I really like. I mean, if it became very successful, I'd probably get bored, actually. The process, actually, the challenges of the the process really excites me. And I, I really enjoy that part of it. Looking back, Raj, if you were to give a younger version of yourself 
a single piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, that's a good one. I would have gone into adventure a bit more earlier than, uh, you know, the 2000s, I think. Uh, if I had done it even earlier, I think we would have achieved much, much more. Going into manufacturing, the whole H&M part of it was great, fantastic experience. But I think if I had done more in tourism, we could have achieved much, much more right now. I'm, I'm a bit selfish in that and I'd like to have achieved more. How would you have gotten into tourism? It's there everywhere. You know, I mean, I did my first trek in 96 and 94 or something like that. My first hikes, early 90s, you know. So, I mean, if I'd just taken the leap right there, could have happened. Do you have a quote that you are known for living by? Yeah, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking too much space. <laughs> I really like that one. It sort of defines, it doesn't mean anything, actually, if you really analyze it. You can't really do it. It somehow is quirky and fun, and it does try to push you towards the edge. And I think that's exactly where I like to be. I like to take my travelers into the edge. I find that learning is the best when you're at the edge. For me, conforming right in the middle is no fun, really. Well, that's really kind of what we were talking about before, how you are ahead of the curve and the leadership position. So you are on your own edge, so to speak. I guess. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that's for somebody else to look at. <laughs> Being out there on the edge, you must have acquired a pet peeve in business. What would that be? I'm not stuck on much, but you know, I wish that people that are in the industry could see more what they could achieve, actually, if they could put their minds to it. You know, and instead of making it very petty, I need to earn money and you know, just being stuck with the whole concept of maximizing of wealth. And you know, if they could just uh, open up their minds a little bit more, they could do so much more. And I see so many businesses that have the capacity to do that. When they don't do it, I just feel like, well, come on, that could be so simple. What advice could you give some of your former co-workers who are maybe still on that path? Or if you had to share to someone who was maybe in that path right now, how would you help to open their eyes so that they could maybe chart a different course for their lives? No, I think people decide what they want to do in life, I guess. And, you know, what is really required is a very, very simple focus. I think sometimes we overcomplicate things too much in life. And if you just keep it very simple and you said, you know, okay, what we want to achieve is some sort of linked prosperity. And then we just work layer by layer by layer. And once you do that, at some point you'll reach there. And there's a little bit of perseverance involved. There's a little bit of creativity involved. There's probably a lot of humility involved when you fail, but then uh, you just keep on going. And then when you do that, you're right. And I think that would be essentially the advice. If people are a bit scared of thinking out of the box, they're a bit afraid to go out. I would just say, try to do it this way. Just keep it very simple. Don't make it too complicated. People try to make complete strategies before they start. And then they can't start because they get so scared about their own strategy. Instead of doing that, if you keep it simple, you just go on, add layer, layer, layer. Keep a simple focus. Don't spread it all over the place in your thinking. I think that would be the advice from, from my side, really. So if you were going to write a book, would the title be Linked Prosperity? I would probably never write a book. I'm too lazy. but okay. <laughs> So I can't really think of a title. Living on the Edge, maybe. <laughs> Speaking of living on the edge, we've been hearing stories about the traffic jams that are happening up on Mount Everest from a social tourism standpoint, Raj. Do you have any thoughts and ideas on what can be done there? Yeah, there's a bunch of factors out there. It's not just that one photograph. It's a very interesting thing. I had a friend of mine who also was on Everest and his comment uh, you know, really rings in my head. 
he said, uh, you know, I was there 45 days on that mountain and every day working, you know, and trying to acclimatize myself, every day providing incomes to people up there, uh, helping us. And then uh, a photograph taken on a three-hour window on a particular day in, in May determines what mountaineering is in Nepal. And I think that is so unfair. So, you know, I mean, really, I think people, there's a lot of overreaction on that photograph. Yes, there could be a lot, lot of things that could be done. There could be better management, lesser permits. There could be many, many things. I mean, there could be different ways to tackle this. The fact of the matter is, with climate change, with the different situations that are happening in the mountain, with more prosperity, with better safety, there are more people up in the mountains. Uh, and there's a capacity to do that. But at the same time, the weather windows are getting shorter and shorter. And this year, they only had, I think, about a week max. And I think they climbed only four days or something like that. And when you have something like that, the chances that you're going to have a traffic jam up there is quite possible, if you, if you like to put it from that angle. So then the only way to solve it is eventually management. If the management was done properly, you know, people given their time, time little slots and stuff like that, they would still break up into a fight because everybody wants to go and reach their dawn because they want to get that perfect shot. Yeah, when they've paid $35,000, $40,000, $100,000, they would want that. You do get into a very complicated scenario. There's no simple solution for that. Is it prestigious because it's expensive to do it? Or is it just an ego thing and that's why people want to do it? Or I'm just trying to tie this back to your comments about business and the linked prosperity. There are multiple things. For some people, mountaineering is a real challenge. They really like to be up there. For a lot of people, it's an ego thing. They just need their photograph up there. I mean, there have been people having fake photographs and stuff like that as well. So, you know, we've had different incidences. I think different things play on people's heads when they're up there. It is expensive, yes, but then what is expense at the end of the day? You know, for if Richard Branson wanted to do it, I mean, $100,000 is nothing for him. So, you know, I mean, that's just, just a relative thing, isn't it? So if you really wanted to do it, money would not be the real factor. I guess the, the other parts of it, I think maybe ego plays a little bit. And then when you're up there, people have a hypoxia, they have altered sickness, you know, they get really mad at things. So there are many other factors that come into play. You know? When you talked about the 30, 40 or $100,000, are those fees or is that just all the costs it takes to, to get up there? That's the total cost. The fees are only about $11,000 for the permits to climb. And then, of course, that, then it depends on how much oxygen you want to carry, how big your expedition is, how exclusive it is, what sort of tents do you carry, what sort of equipments do you buy, how much excess equipment do you buy, how many porters do you have. So, you know, you all add that together. I mean, this year from the Tibetan side, there was even a speed climb attempt where somebody had a tent in Canada, which actually replicated conditions in the mountains. So they actually spent three months at the tents to actually come to, so that they don't have to acclimatize too much in Tibet and stuff like that. So, I mean, technology has taken it to different levels right now. So all of that add on to having it at varying different costs. Raj, we'd love to hear a little bit about the food of Nepal and to share what dishes are really unique in the country. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one because Nepal has got this amazing mix of about a hundred different ethnicities. We've got people who have come here from the northern side, we've got people who have come in from the southern side, so from the Tibetan side, from the Indian side, from the east, from the Burmese side, people who are traders. We're supposed to have descendants from Genghis Khan's horsemen out here. Uh, we've got Shahs who came from Persia. You know, all of these people have come here together. And of course, when they brought, came in here, they brought their food. 
Some of it got mixed up together. Some of it actually stayed the way it is. And then the other part of it is we've got between 70 meters to the top of the world in a span of about 150 kilometers. So it's a really steep country, has got all sorts of different weather conditions and different soil topography. So I like to tell people that we go from pineapple to nothing and everything in between. So, you know, and then up in the mountains, we've got these herbs, the spices, the whole lot. Put that into one pot and then imagine what all you can do with that. Essentially, that results in a lot of different food that is here. So we do have a lot of variety. It's quite, quite rich. It is not multi-layered, exquisite cuisine, as you know, many would like to be. It's quite simple, but uh, tasty and a hearty food. The staple, of course, is rice and lentils, which is actually an import from the southern side and I guess from the plains of Nepal itself. And it became the, the food of uh, the luxury food, so everybody yearned towards it. In the northern side, of course, it's potatoes and buckwheat, which I think is one of the best in the world that we have out here, the high-altitude buckwheat, but then it's considered poor man's food. But now it's making a reappearance again. In, uh, in different forms. A very popular snack is actually an import from China, which is a dumpling, which uh, we like to say that we perfect it because we added spices to it. So that's called a momo. Uh, it is probably Nepal's most loved snack. I'm quite sure Eric ate that as well. Eric, did you like it? Of course, yes. I wanted a momo in every different shape, color, flavor possible. Now, I didn't get to try the fried ones though. I wanted to do that. Yeah, there is a pan-fried one and a deep-fried one. Yeah, that's, that's also there. So, so yeah, we have some of that. And then uh, we have, you. I think you also tried a little bit of the potato soup, you know, sort of potato mash soup. soup thing that you had. Yes. Yeah, which were from the mountains. Yeah, and then a variety of meat items that are there as well. But the most advanced food culture in Nepal is actually in this, in this valley in Kathmandu. Because Kathmandu was a very rich valley and a lot of agriculture, so people had time. It also had four kingdoms, so the kings were always competing with each other. So they competed with architecture, with uh, sculptures, with art, and also with food. So the food culture had developed quite a lot. So there's a variety of cuisine that actually happens in this in Kathmandu Valley. Is it called something so, specific? Uh, no, actually, uh, there are different dishes. A typical feast uh, in the Kathmandu Valley can have up to 35 different varieties of food in one, one meal. The minimum they would have is probably about 15 or so. Then it just keeps on going up. It's considered to be food with the chakras in it, and it's supposed to be very nutritious. So there's a lot of stories around that. And that is the basis on which we also developed the Kathmandu Food Trail, a little bit in that direction. So Eric has tasted that as well. So he knows a little bit about, about the, the Newari food culture here. Wow, Eric, you certainly ate your way through Nepal, it sounds like. Uh, indeed, indeed, yeah. The food there is very interesting. I think that a lot of people, when they go to Nepal, they might be going for a different reason, like outdoor recreation or spirituality, but you don't really know anything about the food ahead of time. And then you get there and you start to experience things like the spices in the market, and then you try the traditional Noari food, and then uh, your friends will take you to maybe a more modern interpretation. It's, it's, it's really interesting to see what some of the chefs are doing to transport Nepali and Nawari cuisine to the next level. And so our ambassador there, Siraj Pradhan, who is one of the organizers of Food Trucks Kathmandu, he was one of the, the chefs who was taking it to the next level. Kumar Shalis also was one of the participants. 
And these people are the ones who are really interpreting Nepalese food and maybe putting it in a way that is maybe, I don't want to say more approachable, but maybe more embraceable by by foreigners. Because sometimes I think when you're there, some of the foods are so different from what we're used to that it can be an acquired taste, you know, some of the experiences. But Mm. maybe trying some of the more fusion type dishes to start with, and then going backwards and saying, okay, well, actually this came from this, and this is where the flattened rice came from and so on. And I don't know, it's, it's very interesting. I've never experienced a food culture like it before. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think the approach, uh, you know, putting an approach to it is very important, I think. And it also stems from people having the confidence in a new food culture, right? And I think this is where the idea of the cooking course also came in for us. And, uh, you know, when I designed it about nine years ago, the idea was just that, that people are only going back with photographs of the mountains and they do taste the food and they always come back and say, I really like the, the rice and the dal and I really like the momos. And, and, but they never get a chance to experience how it's actually made. And I think we're really taking back a very strong memory of actually doing it and feeling it and touching it and understanding the process. And I think that actually gives confidence to the people as well. And that that confidence eventually translates into a promotion of food as well. You know, you hit the nail on the head there, the confidence. I think that I can find something worthwhile in every food culture in the world, but I think that the Nepali people are maybe a little timid to put their, their cuisine out into the world. And I guess the message when I left Nepal was, it's okay. We want to experience your food. We're interested in your food. Let us try it. The tourism industry for a very long time has been shying away from it because wrongly, when tourism started in this country, people always thought that whoever came from abroad needed their own food. We really shot ourselves in the leg when we did that because nowadays when you go up in the mountains, you can get apple pie and pizza and rosti, you know, all over the place in the smallest lodges. Not done very well, but it's there. We haven't done enough to actually promote our own food. So now I think with these new interpretations, I think there's more confidence coming in for people to actually try their own food, modify our own food, use local ingredients and play around with it. As this goes ahead, I think Nepali cuisine will also get out there. I know that there's some Nepalese restaurants in London and people have been talking about them, but they're not quite on the tip of people's tongues yet. But I think that the next 10 years could be very interesting for Nepalese cuisine. I think so too. And I think, again, uh, not being timid is the word that you use. And I think that is exactly what the entrepreneurs also need to do. I think a lot of places that I've been to in the West, in Berlin, in London, uh, the Nepalese restaurants, you know, they end up serving a lot of Indian food because they're just not confident of their own food. That's a demand for it or not. And people enter the restaurants and they're eating papadums. And I'm like, this papadum is not our food. We can play around with this and actually produce so much more. Today, I think people are so inquisitive. They want to learn so much more. And if we can be a bit more comfortable with our own food and our, and our ingredients, I think we can do a lot. I couldn't agree more, Raj. We have a restaurant here in Berkeley that says it's a you know, Nepali restaurant, but then the menu has mostly Indian food and some Nepali dishes. And it's hard for you know, Westerners to know what the difference is. Speaking about meals and dishes, what was your favorite dish growing up? And what is your favorite dish now? I actually don't have a particular favorite dish. I always say that. I'm I'm very easy on the food front. I'm not so particular. I eat almost everything except I realize that I'm allergic to prawns. 
so I can't do that. But the rest of it, I can I can eat pretty much everything. I really like Thai food quite a lot. Growing up, I think we didn't do a lot of choices. I mean, I come from a pretty humble background, so it was mostly the rice meal in the morning, the rice meal in the afternoon, and in the evening, and then you know uh, something in between as a snack, whatever was available. So there was not a lot of I, I like this one, you know, <laughs> sort of sort of feeling. You just ate. Growing up, I still like our momos quite a lot. I mean, that's a very strong favorite uh, on my own food culture that I really like. And there's the whole different styles that are coming in are really good. And the Newari food really attracts me. It's so deep. It's so integrate. And there's so many things you can do with it as well. Personally, currently, I'm a salad freak. I like to do it myself. I create my own salads. I play around with Nepali ingredients and in salads as well. And Current little love of mine is to play around with mustard oils. And we also have our own sort of balsamic mix that Nepalis do. It's a rarefied, uh, reduced uh, lemon lemon that we do, which was used for preservation. And oh. that mix mixed with honey makes for a very nice balsamic that you can actually use with mustard oils and then make it into a salad. And that has been a little favorite that I've been playing around. And if I go with what my family says, if they're being polite, that's great, but otherwise they like it. So it must be a <laughs> Is it called something, the reduced lemon? It's called tsuk. Tsuk. The word for it is tsuk, C-H-U-K. Yeah. It's a very traditional thing in Nepal. A lot of interesting food comes out from the need to preserve. And that is a very interesting discovery around the food culture as well. Because the beaten rice comes from the need to preserve. We have fermented spinach that is dried. That was the only way we could preserve spinach. So we used to ferment it and dry it. And now we use it for soups. You know, that one is called gundruk, which is a real delicacy here in Nepal. So we have a lot of foods actually come out from the need to preserve it. Raj, I was looking at a list of ingredients in your most recent salad creation, and you talk about a Sichuan pepper. We have to talk about this because when people think Sichuan pepper, they think the Chinese one, and the Nepali one is very different. Very pleasant, but also a bit of a surprise. <laughs> for true, true that. Not used to it. How can you call it a Sichuan pepper, though, if it's different? Isn't it different than the Chinese one? Supposedly. Now, I don't know very, you know, I'm not very, probably very accurate here, but call it Sichuan pepper, and it's a Nepali mountain pepper that's also called that. We always dry it. We, we nowadays also get the green ones. People use some of the green ones. But it's, yeah, it, it has a little tingle on your tongue. It's actually considered medicinal in Nepal. So that one is a very interesting thing to use for salads and for, uh, for sauces. It is a very strange little thing. If you take a fistful of it and put it in your mouth, it can actually asphyxiate you to death. Piece by piece, it's, it's a quite an interesting flavor, as you mentioned. I, I wish I had brought back a bag of that pepper from one of the, the spice vendors. Now that I'm gone from Nepal, I find that I actually miss the taste. Speaking of foods and favorite foods and so on, what's your favorite food travel memory? Oh, man, that's, a, that's again a difficult one, I think. One of the memories that I have is actually one wine tasting I did in Germany of all places. I never thought about it. That came as a little bit of a surprise for me because I always thought wine, France, wine, Italy, wine, Spain, wine, South Africa or something like that, but never thought Germany. And so when we had a little bit of time, I think this was in 2000 or something like that in Frankfurt, we decided to join this wine tasting day. And it was beautiful. We went to vineyards, understood the process, drank some of the wines, tried to understand the difference between dry wines, and wet wines. And I 
couldn't really figure it out, to tell you the truth. After the third one, everything tasted the same. The experience was wonderful. It was very interesting and eye-opening. And I never thought that I would actually be so having fun with that sort of experience. And I also had some really funny experience out there because one of the vineyards we went to at we Wine Tasting was actually owned by a Japanese company. What's a Japanese company doing in Germany, doing wines? It also helped me understand that it actually transcends culture and that was a very, very strong memory. I think it still stays in my, in my head. And uh, yeah, it was one of, one of my good memories, I would say. Raj, as we wrap up here, can you leave us with an inspirational quote that you love from someone else? Yeah, again, going back to the edge, isn't it? So yeah, I always like to say that plants seldom survive reality. So it, I think it's a bit of a Nepal thing as well. Plants seldom survive reality and changes can be very inspirational. And if one can embrace that, you can really be very lucky. Fantastic quote and definitely something for us to ponder as we wrap up today. Raj, I would like to thank you for your time. I know it's late there in Kathmandu. Just talking to you again has brought back wonderful memories from my time there. I really appreciate your business sensibility and thank you for for sharing your ideas and your thoughts and your passions with our listeners today. Thanks a lot, Eric and Ashi. I really enjoyed conversing with you. Thank you, Raj. Thanks for listening today. The Eat Well, Travel Better podcast is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association, the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. We empower local communities and businesses with the food and beverage tourism knowledge and tools needed to reach new consumers and gain a competitive edge. Founded in 2003, every year we shepherd a community of almost 100,000 professionals in over 100 countries. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And you can learn more about us, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our family at worldfoodtravel.org. Until next time, eat well and travel better. 